given at Saudi Telecom on the 23rd of January 1992. Those who truly fear Allah among His servants are those with knowledge. Chapter 35, verse 28 of the Quran. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wa salatu wa salam ala rasulil kareem Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi Wa man istanna bi sunnati la umadeen All praise due to Allah And may Allah's peace and blessings be on his last prophet Muhammad Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam And on all those who follow the path of righteousness Until the last day The topic religion and science Is one which has its roots in European history, wherein a conflict developed between the Christian Church and scientific inquiry. That conflict has created in the Western scientific mind a generally negative attitude towards institutionalized religion. Attitude that people hold, which is a product of history, is that science is based on facts and religion is based on blind faith. Therefore, science is something which we can rely on because it can be proven, it's based on facts. And religion is something which is in some ways irrational. Science being rational because it's based on facts, we can reason with it, we can understand it. Whereas religion is looked at as something Irrational. This is a general attitude which we find uh, prevalent in the world today. Now this, I, this concept, this understanding, as I said, is a product of history. It is not uh, something which was always held. Was not, these are not beliefs which were always held. These are a product of certain developments which took place particularly in Europe where modern science as we know it uh, evolved out of and if we go back actually to the history to look at the origin of these sciences of, of science in general we'll find in fact that its origin was not so much in the facts and the rational understanding of these facts as we would be led to believe today uh, if we take uh, the general definition of science, and this is one I'm quoting from uh, Merit Student Encyclopedia, simplified version, science is the sum of human knowledge of the universe. This definition, of course, includes everything. This includes religion, because religion provides a certain knowledge about the universe, as well as what we uh, understand to be science in general includes philosophy. A variety of different things. Any field of knowledge which pertains in any way, shape, or form to the universe would then be classified as science in this general definition. However, the definition goes on to say it deals with facts. And here is where the scientists say, well, here's the difference now between science and religion, philosophy, etc. Science deals with facts. Everybody else is dealing with ideas, 
knowledge, maybe a product of human experience, human reflection. However, that definition doesn't stop there. It says it deals with facts and with the relationships between them. See, here we now step into another field. First, they said that science deals with facts. No problem. Facts is things that we observe, things which are measurable, etc. But then it goes on to talk about the relations between them, because it's not just the observation of these facts, but a relation is developed between them, an explanation is given to these facts. These facts are strung together to form some story, some picture, which is explained. Now comes philosophy, because these facts, as in all cases, facts by themselves do not tell us anything. It is when you put ideas to those facts, when you string the facts in a particular form, and then you draw that relationship between that the facts can now tell us something. And when you go to make that relationship, that, that the ideas that you are going to put there, this now is a reflection of your philosophy. So what this is in fact telling us is that science is based on philosophy. It is in fact based on philosophy. Religion is based, we could say, on a philosophy, on a, an understanding, on, a, a, on an explanation. But it also is based on certain facts. There are certain facts which it strings together and with the, a philosophy it produces an understanding of the universe. Science has certain facts which it strings together, maybe the same facts. And with its understanding, its philosophy, it gives us another picture of the universe. What has happened is that in history, in relationship to Christianity, these pictures have conflicted. And because of this conflict, uh, modern society has looked at religion as being irrational, unprovable, and chosen science as its new religion. Because this is what is in fact has happened. Science in modern times has become the religion of modern man. It explains or seeks to explain why man exists, how he exists, how he came to where he is coming, where is he headed. All these questions, when you look into the scientists who are, you know, delving into the secrets of the universe, splitting the subatomic particles, etc., what are they looking for? They will tell you, we're looking for the building blocks of nature, the origin, to be able to create to understand ultimately they believe that by asking the right question doing the right experiments you will ultimately be able to understand everything man in fact is the god of this world and he this is the philosophy is capable of not only understanding but creating when we look in the past, and the definition of science comes from the Latin 
scientia, which means knowledge. When you look in the very past to what Western science considers to be the origin of science, we see a period of time in around the 7th to the 5th century before the time of Christ in Greece, where science or I should say at this point it was philosophy was geared primarily to determining the basic elements of the universe philosophy of that time period in Greece was geared to determining the basic elements of the universe they were asking the same questions that the scientists today are asking but in that time initially it was considered philosophy straight philosophy. Now it's called science. In that period, no differentiation was made between science and philosophy. Later, science came to be regarded as a component part of philosophy. And finally, as a set of disciplines altogether separate from philosophy. So, we see that science and the concept of science went through a period of evolutionary change change in the, the same questions asked by science today was asked by the originators of science in their philosophies of the past and the leading figures people like Plato and Aristotle who for Western science you know represent the major figures they considered that it was more noble and dignified to seek answers by reasoning rather than by experiment. They felt that experimentation is for the ignorant, those who had to go and to play with matter, etc. Those who were the true scholars, the higher minds, they understood things from their reasoning. They looked at the, the universe around them, and using their minds and their logic and their reason, they were able to draw uh, conclusions, establish principles and laws governing what existed around them. As such, you find that certain concepts developed from that time, for example, that if you drop a heavy ball and a light ball at the same time, you've got a heavy ball in your hand, you know, like a cannonball, and you have a marble, small ball, you drop the two of them, the heavy ball will hit the ground before the small ball. This is what was reasoned. It looked logical. This was bigger, it was heavier, it should hit the ground before the other one, which was smaller and lighter. This was a principle proclaimed way back before the time of Christ, and which was only experimentally checked around the 15th century. When they finally got around to checking this idea, and they did drop the heavy ball and the light ball, they found that both of them hit the ground at the same time. And this is after many centuries had passed you know, where people had accepted this idea of uh, what appeared to be logical and reasonable. But as I said, this was the beginnings of science in philosophy. And these beginnings actually never changed 
the philosophy has remained till today. It has been modified. However, the basis of modern science today is in philosophy. What we found as we went on with the history of Western science, we found that after the time of the Greeks, in the early uh, hundreds, two hundreds, after the time of Jesus, we found that the Roman Empire took over. It uh, brought the Greeks under their control, and with it, most of this area, the Mediterranean area. And the, Greek, the Romans were not as much into science, into uh, reasoning, etc. They were more concerned with administration. So we find that scientific inquiry sort of went on a decline during this period. And something happened. With the spread of Christianity, we find that around the, the fourth century, in this period, that the concept of the Trinity was adopted by the Holy Roman Emperor at the time, Constantine, and this was imposed on the rest of the Christian world. This is in the fourth century. They had a Council of Nicaea in 325 and a series of other councils in which this Trinitarian concept was introduced into Christianity. Prior to that, the majority of Christians were Unitarians. They believed that God was one. Not three in one, but just one. And what we find is that after this period of the introduction of the concept of Trinity, we find Europe entering, with the beginning of the 5th, 6th century, entering into what came to be known as the Dark Ages. From the 6th century all the way up to the 11th century is referred to in European history as the Dark Ages. This is the age, this is the period of time when knowledge reached its lowest ebb. Most of the, the literature, the writings, the scientific theories of the Greeks, etc. was mostly forgotten. A few monks in monasteries maintained uh, some of this knowledge with but it was used basically to serve the purpose of the church. Uh, the church scholars would take the, some of the theories of the past which seemed to fit or provide some kind of room for the development of the new Christian philosophy and they had a tight rein on any kind of scientific inquiry. They established what was to be the understanding of the world and they wanted no competition. During this period, we find Islam was established in the Middle East, the 7th, 8th century, and from there it spread over North Africa into Palestine and into Spain into Southern Europe. And this is a time now when the sciences flourished. The sciences of the, the Greeks were translated into Arabic. And Arabic became the language of science. What was translated was not merely translated and just kept and read, but was developed upon. Uh, science which was in uh, Persia, in 
in India was brought over, combined, and Muslim scientists worked with this and developed science to a very high level, establishing universities in the region of Palestine and, and uh, Baghdad and, and uh, Spain, North Africa, Morocco, etc. And during this period, we find the uh, Crusades beginning. And what happened is that towards the end of this period, around the 12th century, we find a renaissance beginning in Europe. From European scientists, scholars, going to Spain, taking information back from Palestine, from the Crusades, we find a revival of knowledge in Europe. And it was during this period that, you know, some of the great uh, philosopher-scientists like uh, Thomas Aquinas and Roger Bacon, etc., you know, uh, developed the theories and concepts which became the basis for modern philosophy and science. However, after an initial spurt, we find that the church trying to rein things back in, to get it back under control. And following the bubonic plagues in Europe, what was known as the, the Black Plague, a lot of people died, the church gained sway over the situation. Scientists really couldn't explain what was happening. People turned back to depend on religion, and the church established itself again firmly. All people, all scientists or scholars who were proposing ideas which were contrary to what the church had established from way back in the dark ages and prior were now put under scrutiny. Inquisition courts were set up and uh, those who were found to hold ideas contrary were executed. For example, one uh, Giordano Bruno who was executed for heresy in the 1600s because he stated that the universe was infinite and the earth only a small body in it. We know of uh, Copernicus who had published a sun-centered theory about the solar system, about the, the universe. Prior to this it was held that the earth was the center, you know, according to uh, the Greek philosophers which the church adopted. The, the, uh, the, the earth was the center of the universe. Everything else revolved around the earth. You know, man was the most important being in this universe. So, it made, the, sun, the earth-centered concept was uh, attractive to the early Christian church. So now when Copernicus, uh, from his observations, etc., he was an astronomer, determined that in fact the sun was the center and the earth revolved around it, he himself was so afraid for his life, he did not publish this until the year that he died. He published his thesis on the sun-centered sun theory of the uh, solar system the year that he died. He kept quiet. He had worked it out many years before. You know, in fact, he had uh, finished his work in 1529, but he didn't publish it until 1543, you know, when he died. This is for fear of what was going to happen to him from the clergy. Galileo, he carried on uh, Copernicus' ideas. He, he accepted them and tried to promote them. And the church called him up, tried him, told him at first because... You know, he was a favorite son of Italy. 
they told him at first just to cool down, don't promote this theory, you know, be quiet, we don't want, you know, any problems. But he insisted. And uh, after his insistence, you know, when he did do some writings which supported Copernicus' theories, he was himself called up, tried, convicted of teaching false doctrines, and compelled to renounce the Copernican theory, and was uh, imprisoned. Later was changed to house, house arrest where he died. But he kept on writing in any case. But this is what was happening to the scholars there in Europe. However, the contact which had been made with Muslims in Spain, in Palestine, etc., continued to bear fruit. And combined with a Reformation movement which developed in Europe, wherein we had uh, people like Calvin and Martin Luther challenging the Roman Catholic Church and Martin Luther's challenge began when he, he had taken a pilgrimage to Rome to go to the spiritual center to renew his spiritual feelings to get further spiritual understanding when he came to Rome and he found the Pope you know was sitting on a throne like a temporal king he had a crown of gold which was so heavy he couldn't even put on his head it had to be strung up from the ceiling by you know by wires you know he was shocked here he was sitting there in golden robes with, you know, with uh, staffs and scepters, etc. Just like a temporal king. Martin Luther returned from uh, Rome and condemned what he saw as corruption. Himself and Calvin and the others started the Reformation movement which broke away from Roman Catholicism and developed what is now known as the Protestant movement or Protestantism. Besides this, we had scientists who took advantage of this period of, of uh, breakup, this period of rejection of the Roman Catholic Church and started to delve into questions concerning religion in general. And what we found born out of this period along with Protestantism is atheism as a theory, as a reasoned principle. It produced later the Marxist dialectical materialism, which is often called scientific socialism, wherein human history is reduced to an economic struggle between the haves and the have-nots, and all social systems become an expression of the classes, religion being a tool used by the ruling class to maintain the status quo, and God, a fictitious friend of the rich who predestined their rule over the poor. That was the sum total of what religion represented. On the other hand, you had other body of scientists who developed what is known as the Darwinian theory, wherein human existence is determined to be the result of natural forces. There was no need to go to look into the supernatural to explain man's existence, why he's here, where he's going, why he's what he is, etc., etc. Natural selection or survival of the fittest becoming the principle which determines man's existence and where he's headed. Now, we have, when we look into this period, some reasons which has, have led the scientists of this period to come to these type of conclusions. One of them 
I feel is fundamentally based in the Trinitarian concept. The concept of the Trinity wherein man is required to accept that God is one and at the same time he is three. The facts tell us that one plus one plus one equals three. But religion from the fourth century onward in Europe taught that one plus one plus one equals one in relationship to God. So this is something which is inexplicable. It is something which the church puts under the heading of a divine secret. You cannot understand it. No matter what explanations you try to give, it cannot be explained. So it is something which goes against the, the nature which God created man in, wherein he analyzes things logically. So there is something that these scientists, something which is eating away at them, which doesn't seem logical to them, which they cannot express. This is why you found people like, for example, Newton, Isaac Newton. He rejected the Trinitarian concept. But he didn't disbelieve in God. It's not all of the scientists took this path. You know, actually it was really a minority among the scientists, but they tended to be the most vocal, even today. There's a general understanding that we have that, you know, say scientists in America are atheists. They don't believe in God. This is not really true. Polls which are taken of the majority of scientists in America is that some 80% of them believe in God. They may not accept traditional religion or the traditional understanding of God in terms of God becoming man, etc., etc., of Christianity, but they believe in God. There's only a 15 to 20% who actually disbelieve in God. However, this 10 or 15% are very vocal. You know, they're very, you know, uh, enthusiastic in promoting their ideas so if one were to read or to watch a television or etc in America you have people like Carl Sagan you know who uh, you know is one of the best exp you know explainers of scientific theory in layman's terms you know he's able to take that complex ideas of astronomy and biology and biochemistry and put it in very simple easily understood words but this man is a confirmed atheist and he gets a lot of television time. So if one were to watch television in America, scientific type things, you would assume that, geez, you know, all these people really don't believe in God. But he is just one among a few who are actually, as I said, very vocal in their explanations. People, as I said, like Newton, for example, Isaac Newton, he believed in one God. And he pr provided, you know, what came to be the, the uh, unifying theory of, of, of science of that period of time. But he relied on the belief in the existence of God. And he would discuss and argue with some of his atheistic friends and prove to them through, you know, reason and logic that God does exist. However, the Trinitarian God of Christianity, he did not accept. So, when we look at this process, and then we go over to now look at Islam and science, we see that there is obviously a difference between the two from the very root. One, the Islamic concept of God is that God is a unity. One, indivisible, having no parts. God is one, in the purest sense. This concept 
was a concept which is arrived at by the Greeks, the same Greeks, uh, Plato and Aristotle. They used reasoning to come to this conclusion. Without revelation available to them, they used pure logic and reasoning to come to the conclusion that there was one God, only. So, if we use, as we said, we use the, the, the rational mind without the influence of theories, etc., it will, arguing logically, come to the conclusion of the existence of one God. So for Islam, there is no problem here. There is no fundamental contradiction, you know, irrationality in its concept of God. So there is no conflict in the base between what we could say philosophical science because really we don't as we said science is not purely facts it is, there is a philosophy there involved, which involves reasoning etc this philosophical science when it reasons using the facts it will come to that same conclusion the majority of the scholars scientific uh, scholars hold this and that was as I said the conclusions arrived at by the origins of what is known as western science the Greek philosophers <coughs> furthermore we find, as our young brother read, he read from the first verses which were revealed of the Qur'an, from a chapter known as Al-Alaq, or the leech-like clot, blood, in reference to the development of man within the womb of the woman. It begins, Iqra. Read. This was the first commandment given to the Prophet Muhammad, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him. Read, اقرأ بسم ربك الذي خلق. Read in the name of He who created. It goes on to say, علم الإنسان ما لم يعلم. That Allah taught man what he didn't know. And that Allah taught man to write, not only to read, but to write. This is the beginnings of the revelation. Knowledge is there. We find in the Quran, when God commands concerning belief, He says, اعلموا أنه لا إله إلا الله. No, you should have knowledge that there is no God but Allah. Knowledge precedes faith. In the Islamic system, knowledge precedes faith. We are required to know who God is before we can worship Him. Because if you don't know who God is, then you can end up with the sincerest of desires worshipping a tree or a stone or the stars or animal or man. No one can question the sincerity of your worship. But because it was not based on knowledge, you are worshipping other than God, thinking that in fact you are worshipping God. And this is what has happened to much of mankind. So, knowledge is something, and we said that science was the totality of man's knowledge of the universe. Knowledge is something which we look at as being revealed by God to man, for the service of man. 
Allah says in the Quran that when He created Adam, He taught him the names of everything. He gave him knowledge, the ability to classify, to identify the things around him. This is what makes man, part of what makes man superior to the animals. The animals may deal with their environment, but they're not able to classify it and utilize it and to build on the knowledge that they have previously. Animals, what they have is what is natural to them and they just utilize it without reflection or anything. But man's ability to classify and identify, this allows him an opportunity to reflect on the relationships between them, to build on this knowledge and to advance with every generation. You know, like an otter, for example, if you observe an otter, an otter is a sea animal found in North America, uh, which will build homes, tear back two down trees and gather the pieces of the trees and make homes, underwater homes, something very complex. But the otter cannot build on that knowledge. If you take the otter out of that environment and you put him on the desert, he's finished. You put him in a, an environment that doesn't have water, for him to build these type of homes, he can't survive. He's not able to transfer that knowledge he has into another environment. Whereas man, he's able, he knows how to build a home in, in, in the desert, he can transfer that knowledge, adapt it and build it in the jungle, and he can build it in the North Pole. He is able to apply his knowledge. We believe this is from God. So therefore, in Islam, there is no contradiction between knowledge in the true sense and the teachings of Islam. What you find when you look into the Quran itself, a variety of indications, pointers to science, to knowledge of the universe. God speaks of a variety of different processes which only in our recent times we have been able to identify. The process of the formation of milk in the cow, the development of the embryo in the womb of the mother. It's identified and descri described in such detail that one of the leading embryologists, Dr. Uh, Moore from Canada, he revised his book on embryology, including, because prior to this he had mentioned when he was looking at the history of embryology, he had given all the different theories that were in Europe, you know, which are a lot of wild stuff, and showed that the, uh, you know, it wasn't until after the discovery of the microscope, etc., etc., that, you know, in the uh, 19th century, 20th century, that the, the co correct concept of the development of the embryo was understood. Finally, he came across, he was shown, he was invited to a conference and the verses of the Quran concerning the development of the embryo were given to him to analyze and to his surprise he found a description which matched modern science's understanding. So closely that he amended his book, his textbook, putting in a section there that surprisingly enough, way back in the 14th century, uh, in, in the uh, 8th century, you know, 1400 years ago, uh, this description did exist of the development of the embryo at a time when there were no microscopes. There was no way, really, that man could possibly describe this, 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 this evolution of this development of the uh, embryo. He left it at that. One would question, well, there were some other steps that should be taken. This is what you found. As a matter of fact, one uh, embryologist from... Uh, Thailand, who attended the same conference, after he saw those facts, he declared that he was a Muslim. 
That was enough for him. Because this was something obviously which could not have been the product of a man. And when you go through the Quran, and as I said, there are a number of references to, to theories and facts which modern science has have now accepted as being facts as a whole, uh, which were way beyond their time, which were not understood in that period of time. Of course, some people may say, well, <coughs> if we go back to the ancient philosophers of Greece, etc., we find some of them proposing concepts which have now become accepted scientific facts. True. However, at the same time that these scientists proposed some ideas which turned out to be fact today, they also made some colossal blunders. They made some statements, as I told you about the heavy ball and the light ball. There are many others which are really, really outlandish, which modern science, you know, rejects totally. So though they may have a few instances of correct predictions, they had many instances of misunderstanding. Whereas when we go through the Quran, we find that all of the references to scientific or natural phenomena match what is known by scientific fact. It is consistent. And this is not the normal pattern, as I said, of people who prophesy or, you know, just uh, speculate. You should say, prophesy in the, in the secular sense, I don't mean in the religious sense. Those who speculate, they're not going to be consistently correct. They'll be correct sometimes, but many times they will be incorrect. So, we find, here the Quran speaking about these various natural phenomena, we find it calling man to knowledge, calling man to learn, to understand, to understand that this knowledge came from God and that it is to be used for the benefit of man. As such, science found a home in the Muslim civilization. As I mentioned, it took the Greek, the books of the Greece and of uh, India, Persia, etc., translated these books, developed the sciences, and scientists were held in esteem. In the Muslim world, scientists were held in esteem. They were not afraid of being, uh, you know, put before Inquisition courts or or executed for heretical statements, etc. No. This was not the case. So we find historically science has a, a very strong established basis within the bounds, within the fold of Islam. There has been no struggle between science and Islam. However, to be realistic, we know that there have been in the past theories proposed by Muslim scientists which have been proven wrong in these times. So it doesn't mean that every theory produced by Muslim scientists was correct. We also have had in not too distant past, you know, some religious scholars who have made statements, for example, that the earth is flat, you know, which contradicts what we know to be modern science. However, these statements of individuals are not considered to be Islam per se. These are just uh, re- you could say reflections of individuals. These are not considered to be you know, Islamic law. So now we have a challenge between science and Islam. No. The individual, for example, who said the earth was flat, sufficient people brought, sat with him, brought him enough evidence, and he backed off it and accepted that the earth was round. Actually, you know, over a thousand years before that, or not, no, maybe about 800 years before that, 
one of the Muslim geographers, Idrisi, he proposed that the earth was round, a Muslim geography. And he laid down his reasoning, his arguments, etc., based on the facts that he observed from traveling, seeing how land approaches when you're, you know, when you're in the sea, when you're approaching the shoreline, the land seems to increase the, the, what you see of it. If the earth were flat, you know, you would see the land even from a distance. It would just appear, you know, uh, more clear as you got closer. But what, they, what he found was that the land was invisible at a distance and became more and more visible, showing more and more as he came towards it, which seemed to imply that the earth was in fact round, and so therefore as you're coming over the horizon, the thing becomes visible. This was his line of reasoning. And also there are verses in the Qur'an which were used to support this uh, concept. So what we find here is that though we may find Muslims, scholars or scientists, making statements at different points in history which may contradict what we now know to be scientific facts, these do not in and of themselves represent a conflict between religion and science. These were merely opinions and Muslims as a whole reject those opinions when the evidence comes to the contrary. We have no problem, science, Islam, Islam has no problem in dealing with what we may classify as scientific facts. But as I said, science within the Islamic scope is looked at as being something given by God to man to serve man. So, historically, science within the Muslim world has been used to improve the quality of life of man. Whereas what happened as the process of uh, science developed in Europe and in the West is that science once it divorced itself from religion religion became separate science was now separate the moral values of religion were also removed so science was no longer had no moralistic guidelines it was it became now the tool of the state or the capitalist those who are in control of the economy. On a state level, it could be used to justify dropping the atomic bomb, you know, at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, obliterating, you know, thousands of lives. Because morality is taken out of here. It's an issue of survival now, survival of the fittest. Darwin's theory comes back into play. On the economic frame, you have so many scientists who will develop new improvements for products, but the big companies will stop the development of these improvements until it is convenient to them. Many of the new developments which are put in the motor car today to improve gas you know, uh, usage, etc., these were developed 20, 30 years ago. But the, ga- the, the, the oil companies, the, the car product, production, uh, the car producers, they hid these facts from the general public. They did not implement them because it, was, it would affect their, their profits at that time. So when they had their maximum profits out of using the old gas guzzlers and people are now crying for something else while well, they introduced these new developments. But they were old. So we find science, you know, in the West, generally speaking, not serving the interests of man 
but serving the interests of certain elements. You find people spending billions of dollars to go to the moon, to explore Mars. You know, America is spending billions of dollars to go to the moon and explore Mars. And at the same time, it has nearly a million people living in the streets, homeless. You know, when we think of people who live and die in the streets, we think of Calcutta. You know, this is what comes to my mind, it's, you know, growing, growing in the West. This is what comes to my mind, Calcutta, India. This is where people live and die in the streets. No! In America, close to a million people are there, living in the streets without home, dying when the winter comes suddenly, getting frozen to death. People dying of malnutrition. The use of science, as it is understood in the West today, and the use of science as Islam perceives it, there will be a conflict here, because Islam would be opposed to the use of science in this manner spending billions to put a man on the moon and you, can, and you have people starving to death on the earth. This would be considered, you know, uh, sacrilege. From an Islamic point of view, it's sacrilegious. It's denying the favors that God has given us. Similarly, we find in the, the Western approach to science that knowledge, for the sake of knowledge, is something which has been, you know, you could say indoctrinated the minds of the young people growing up there they have been indoctrinated with this concept knowledge for the sake of knowledge you know, this is again the idea this is part of the philosophy of divorcing knowledge from morality from religion from society knowledge for the sake of knowledge whereas in Islam knowledge is for the service of man it is as good as it can be applied. So you won't find Muslim scientists spending billions of dollars, you know, building huge machines to split subatomic particles so that they can find out how the universe began. No. No. This is what you find in the West. Billions are being spent in Europe and America now to try to split the subatomic uh, particles because, as they say, they want to find out how the universe began. What is that going to do for us today? Assuming you will ever be able to find out how the universe began. See, that kind of inquiry, the spending of huge amounts of money for that kind of inquiry, this would be considered, as I said, sacrilegious in an Islamic context. No. We study the sciences, we study the facts, research, but with the goal to serve man to improve the quality of his life. This is the, we could say, the integration of science and Islam. The philosophy, as I said, behind it being that knowledge comes from God. It is a blessing which God has given man. And man has a responsibility to use that knowledge according to the principles of religion according to the principles which have been defined by God, which have to do with the betterment of man in the service of God. One of the products of the materialist approach to science also is that you have no end of fakes 
to know because science now is in the service of material interest. A scientist, he knows, if he is able to produce a new theory, a new fact, this will bring him huge amounts of money and fame. So you found from early times, way back in the 40s and 50s, you had what was known as the Piltdown Man. You know, this was amongst the anthropologists when they were trying to find the missing link between man and the ape. One scientist, he went to some um, carpets in, uh, in England, he got some bones from a chimpanzee, the orangutan, human bones, he filed them, put some chemicals on them, stained them, and buried them in, a, in, in, in this pit, uh, tar pit, then came along with another of his friends and discovered them. And from these few fragments, an individual was made called the Piltdown Man, because Piltdown is the name of the place where they found it, and he was supposed to have been the missing link between the ape and man. You know, this was like in the 40s. And this remained so accepted. You know, pictures of this guy, the color of his skin, the hair on his face, everything from these few bones. Uh, this remained a scientific fact until one scientist, you know, in the late 50s, decided to, to check, you know, um, the carbon dating had developed and decided to check some of the materials of this Piltdown uh, Man and they found that, in fact, it was a modern chimpanzee and orangutan and, you know, a few human bones. Okay, so that was thrown out. Piltdown Man was no longer the missing link. So they went searching elsewhere. And in recent times, you have, you know, the case of what they call cold fusion. Remember in the States last year, you know, supposedly some scientists had developed cold fusion, the ability to bring, you know, atoms together, releasing huge amounts of energy at room temperature. Normally this is done at very high temperatures. They've done it, but it's done at very high temperatures. To be able to do it at room temperature, you know, means you've discovered a source of energy, you know, which could replace atomic energy, replace, you know, all the existing systems that we use today. Just from water. This was a big scientific discovery. It was all over the newspapers. Everybody was hailing this thing. And then it was found out when they tried to repeat the experiment that it was a fake. I just gave you a, uh, an ancient example and a recent example. There are many in between. No end. No end of them. Every year you find scientists doctoring their data, you know, changing the figures, you know, to produce results which would gain them fame and money because, as I said, science now has been separated from religion. A Muslim scientist would never consider that. The idea of falsifying data to gain fame, that would be inconceivable. So again, here, if we look at the, the modern uh, view of science, the materialist science, we would say, yes, this is in conflict with Islam. Islam would be totally opposed to this type of approach, materialistic atheistic approach to the utilization of science. So in summary, I would say that science, as we defined it in the beginning, being the knowledge, human knowledge of the universe, based on facts and the relations between these facts, this is in harmony with Islam. Islam accepts and utilizes such a definition 
for the service of man. In the basis of Islamic understanding, the Unitarian concept of God, which is so pure in Islam, it provides a re rational, reasonable basis for scientists to go out and seek the understanding of the universe for the service of man. It does not have fundamental concepts which may be classified as irrational, as we found in Christianity, which, the imposition of which, led to the arrival of the Dark Ages in Europe and produced ultimately a reaction which led to what is now known as modern atheism, scientific socialism, whereas from an Islamic point of view, the, the history of Islam in its relationship to science has been one of harmony, science has been promoted, scientists were elevated, looked at in honor in the society from its beginnings. Today, however, due to the process of colonization and the moving of the masses of Muslims away from the teachings of Islam, they have fallen behind and are no longer the leaders in the fields of science, except though you may find particular individuals in various fields around the world, you know, leading scholars, but as a whole, science is not, has not maintained its status amongst the Muslim world as it did in the past. And this, as I said, is due not to the fact that Islam is opposed to science, but that Muslims have moved away from the application of Islam correctly in their lives so as to provide the kind of impetus for science to play a meaningful and a leading role along with revelation in the lives of humanity. This uh, presentation we wanted to keep reasonable, reasonably short so that um, you would have an opportunity to express your questions. Those which are written we will answer. And those people would like merely to raise their hands and question, you're also welcome to raise your hands and question. There is, uh, please do understand, there is much more that can be said on this topic. I mean, I am just trying to touch on some of the major points, and I hope that it has been of some benefit to you all. Jazakallah uh, khair, Brother Bilal. It was really a fruitful uh, lecture, and we have very much enjoyed it. Uh, we've got few questions in here, actually. Uh, the traditional question that you must have answered uh, many times, how did you become a Muslim, actually? Would you uh, want to answer this one, or do you want to keep it at the end, uh, after we finish the, uh, the other uh, questions about the same topic? Well, I prefer to deal with the questions concerning the topic, uh, uh, if there is time at the end, you know, to go into that, then it's possible. Sure. Okay, that's good. Uh, there's a very long one actually in here. It says uh, to Mr. Bilal Phillips, please make comments on this. 
what is the uh, the stand of Islam or your stand on the Big Bang theory, which is gaining recognition on the scientific community? You want to answer that first. The um, the Big Bang theory, you know, which proposes that the whole of the matter of universe of the universe was at one point concentrated at a particular point in space and time and from that point exploded outward and this is the uh, reason for the movement of the stars that we observe now etc. Uh, this theory does not contradict Islamic uh, understanding because it doesn't really deal with the origin of things anyway. Because even when we get to the point of, you know, the concentration of the mass of the universe in a particular point, we still have the question, where did this mass of the universe come from? Now those scientists who propose the Big Bang Theory, who hold that matter was eternal, it had no beginning, well then, of course, we are opposed to that. Islam does not accept that. Many other scientists will say, we don't deal in the beginnings, we're just dealing with this point in time. Well, Islam would say, okay, if you go from that point in time, this concept is not in contradiction to uh, Islamic understanding. The second one is, the, uh, there is a question on the issue that mankind didn't come from a single pair, Adam and Eve. Assuming Adam and Eve were Middle Eastern, they could be the great-great-grandparents of uh, prison Arabs and Jews. How about the Africans, the Europeans and the Asians? Um, as a matter of fact, a man and woman of the Pygamy tribe of Africa cannot be the child of children, of children with fair skin and blonde and with... I'm sorry? And blonde, blonde hair. Yeah, and blonde hair, and with feathers of a common, uh, what is it, Nordic of Europe, and vice versa. A Nordic pair of uh, man and a okay, woman. Okay, okay. okay um, <coughs> the issue of Adam and Eve being the first man uh, is something which we believe based on revelation. According to Islam, Islam teaches that the first man and woman created were Adam and Eve, that man did not evolve from a, an earlier life form. It believes in general in what we call special creation, that each species was created in and of itself. There may be development within that species, variation in that species, but not that one species becomes another species. As you find, for example, gorillas, you find many different types of gorillas depending on where you go in the world. You have many different types of monkeys, chimpanzees, etc. And you have many different types of human beings. This is the facts. How you put these facts together? The uh, scientific community, they like to string the facts that uh, chimpanzees became gorillas who became human beings or gorillas became chimpanzees who became human beings 
Whereas, another look at the facts is that gorillas arose, were created as gorillas. Uh, <coughs> chimpanzees as chimpanzees and human beings as human beings. So it's a question of how you interpret the facts. Uh, the fact that there is a variety amongst mankind today which apparently cannot produce the variation which exists in mankind. That is to say, no matter how many male and female Filipinos you marry, you're not going to produce an African, right? Or no matter how many uh, Indians are married back and forth, you're not going to produce a Filipino or a person who may be typically considered a Filipino. This does not exclude the fact that the genes for the production of the Filipino, of the African and the Indian and the European existed within Adam and Eve. We have seen, we know historically, that if you isolate the people, then common genes will circulate amongst them and they will tend to look alike in that particular area. So when you breed them, they will produce people who look like themselves. But that doesn't mean that they do not have genes in them which may produce other features. But it's just that these have now become common. So, from an Islamic point of view, there is no problem scientifically in accepting that Adam and Eve had the genes that produced the variety that exists in mankind. From their children, they had children of all types. And the children's children, etc., settled in different parts of the world. And in settling and intermarrying amongst themselves in different parts, certain features became common. There's no problem with that. So, we do not look at the, um, the existence of Adam and Eve being the beginnings of mankind as <coughs> being... Uh, in any way contradictory scientifically or to Islamic uh, thought. Furthermore, uh, the idea that Adam and Eve were Middle Eastern, no, nobody says this. There is no place in the Quran or in the teachings of the Prophet, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him, which says that Adam and Eve were Middle Eastern. So that assumption is incorrect in and of itself. Question, if you're blaming U.S. spending billions of dollars to go to the moon, what's the difference between them and Muslims consuming billions of energy, that is, light and oil? Increasing the price of oil while the third world is suffering from these causes. <laughs> uh, what we were talking about was the use of science. The squandering of resources this is, not, this is not something peculiar to the West. You know, the squandering of resources exists all around the world. And 
Muslims are no exception. But what does Islam say about squandering resources? Islam prohibits it. It states very clearly in the Quran, إِنَّ الْمُبَذِّرِينَ كَانُوا إِخْوَانِ الشَّيَاطِينَ وَكَانَ الشَّيْطَانُ لِرَبِّهِ كَفُورًا That those who squander, spendthrift, who squander wealth, they are the brethren of the devils. And the devil was a disbeliever in his Lord. So wherever you find Muslims squandering wealth, you have found people who have strayed away from Islam. And as I explain, I explain that. This is one of the reasons why Muslims are in the state today. That they have strayed away from applying the principles of Islam as they are taught by the Prophet Muhammad. May Allah's peace and blessings be upon him. So of course, I in no way would justify the squandering of, uh, of resources as to the increasing of oil prices. You know, this is something which has to do with uh, international politics of survival. Uh, oil prices, though we may say, or it may appear to us that the oil prices are controlled by the Arabs, you know, they're the ones who've got the, the oil and they're controlling it. In fact, the oil prices are controlled by the oil companies, most of which are not in the hands of the Arabs. When we had the embargo, you know, back in the 70s where oil was used as a weapon to try to force the West to uh, comply with certain uh, political necessities of the time and also to demand some of the rights which were due to those who were producing the oil, the Western oil companies made huge profits. Sure, the public, they suffered. They had to pay more and everything. But the oil companies that were supplying the oil, their profits increased during that period of time. So, when you go to look at the realities, you will find that uh, the issue of starving the third world about oil, etc., goes far beyond the oil producers. And it actually falls into the lap of those who control the distribution of oil and the oil prices in the world on a practical level. You know, OPEC operates on a certain level, but there are levels which are above OPEC. Please compare the modern uh, concept of arbitrary movement of heavenly bodies, plants and stars and uh, that's stated in the Quran. You know, actually this question, I mean, this is some of the areas that you know, I didn't go into in the lecture for the purpose of you know, keeping it uh, shorter and giving uh, those people who have particular questions that they would like to raise, you know. Uh, this but just to just answer briefly, you know, there are, there, there's clear references in the Quran to the moon and the sun uh, traveling in orbits and, and traveling in space. And uh, this has been found in recent times, uh, the movement of the sun, because it was previously thought that the sun was stationary, you know, from the time of Copernicus onwards. It was believed that the sun was stationary. However, it is now believed, according to scientists, that the sun does move in an orbit within the galaxy, and that the galaxy as a whole is moving in space. So it has both, it rotates on its own axis, one, 
it moves in an orbit within the galaxy and it is as a totality moving in space and they've even calculated I mean this is science modern philosophical science calculated the point in time where the sun's movement will end it's time coming to an end and there is reference in the Quran to the sun moving to its appointed place and time Uh, if anybody has any questions that, like, they'd like to raise in terms of putting their hands up, especially, um, I would like to hear from our non-Muslim uh, brothers in humanity who are here with us. Here, you know, I see some faces. Uh, we've talked about a lot of different things here. I would really like to hear from some of them. These questions that I can see are all from Muslims, you know, and I'd really like to hear something from our non-Muslim brothers in humanity. If there's anybody who has any questions. In relationship to the topic presented yesterday, Okay, you know, Islam has certain very clear fundamental principles which are universal, applied in every society. But there is an aspect which has to do with social uh, and cultural norms which are allowed as long as they don't conflict with the basic principles. So when you go around the Muslim world, from Philippines to India to Africa, South and North to Arabia, you will find a variety, Indonesia, Malaysia, you will find a variety of cultural practices which are not in conflict with Islam and which are perfectly acceptable. But when these cultural practices conflict with Islam in the sense that they involve either uh, paganistic rites and rituals, uh, then Islam will prohibit it. But Islam, as I said, is a basic framework which allows variation within the framework as long as it doesn't affect the framework itself you know it's like Islam provides like the structure of this building but how you set the glasses and you know what type of tiling you use for the floor and whether you use aluminum doors or wooden doors that's up to you so that would be like the cultural differences but this, the overall structure you know designed by the architect that is like the structure of Islam designed by Allah who knows man and man's needs so he has designed for us a structure within which we can make our variations. What is acceptable and what is not acceptable? The, the ultimate arbitrator is the Quran, which is the word of God, believed by Muslims, 
and the sunnah or the explanations given by the Prophet Muhammad for the uh, application of the Quran. He demonstrated, he explained to us the meanings of the Quran and how it should be applied. So it's on the basis of what this, they call this the Quran and the sunnah or the way of the Prophet which is the arbitrator for what is acceptable among uh, cultural variations and what is not. See, this is one of the major differences between, for example, Islam and Christianity. In that, in Christianity, you have, we have the Bible. However, there is no sunnah. The way of Jesus is not an arbitrator. People are not obliged to follow the way of Jesus. Only the Bible. What is in the Gospels is enough. But the way of Jesus, for example, Jesus did not eat pork. That was his way. But Christians eat pork. Most. Well, you know, amongst human beings, tolerance may vary from person to person. You know, if you are from another culture and you come into this particular culture and your way is different, you know, those people who are more educated and more, you know, worldwide, they've traveled, they are more able to accept your variations than the common person who's used to seeing things only one way. So you may find these kind of variations amongst people, but ultimately, you know, as I said, the criterion is the Quran and the Sunnah. So a person has the right as a Muslim, wherever he goes, if a person questions, you know, why are you doing this? You know, this is not the way. You say, okay, can you show me where it goes against the commandments of the Quran and the Sunnah? If he cannot show you, then you say, you must accept it as reasonable. Finish. And that ends the argument. But you see, the unifying factor, for example, the method of prayer, prayer in Arabic, this is something wherever you go. See, this, no, we don't allow, variation is not allowed here. Because, for example, if the Chinese, you know, you've got about 40, 50 million Muslims in China, if they decided to make the call to prayer in Chinese, and they led the prayer in Chinese, a Muslim visiting that land would never know that prayer was going on, or if he happened to come across a mosque and join the prayer, he wouldn't know what the Imam was saying, and he wouldn't know what to do. Whereas it being Arabic, wherever you go in the world, a Muslim, no matter what country he comes from, he can join the prayer, he can find out where the prayer is, when it is, and be a part of it. So that is that common bond. Whereas how he dresses, the Chinese who is dressing for prayer, he may use a different style, different colors. You know, whereas the person from the Middle East, he may use a different style, different colors. This is up to them, you know. And if a Middle Easterner says to a Chinese, well, listen, why don't you wear clothes like what we are wearing? He has the right to say, is what I'm wearing against the Qur'an and the Sunnah? Is it prohibited in the Qur'an and the Sunnah? And he says, no. Well, he says, well then, I prefer to wear what I'm wearing. Finish. I think there's a mix-up between the customs and the, and the area here, actually, and the Islamic uh, uh, teachings, actually. People are mixing between the two things, actually. They think that living in here, actually, or living in Arabia in general, they have to adhere to the customs of the people. Well, you know, in a sense, uh, for ease in dealing with people, adhering to some degree to their customs, you know, makes life easier, right? Where the customs become a problem 
you know, then you have to judge, you know, can I deal with this or can I not? You know, but you're not required to. The customs, sure, there are some things here in, in Arabia, for example, which are particular to the Saudi Arabians. If you go to Syria, the Syrians may do it a different way. If you go to Pakistan, the Pakistanis will do it a different way. You know, these are the customs. When you're there in Pakistan, Syria, or in Arabia, for ease of, of dealing with people, you may want to conform to some degree to their customs. You know, this is an option that you have. And it just makes life easier if you have to deal with them on a day-to-day -day basis. But surely Islam does not require you to do so. You know, and especially if there are customs which are, you know, in no way connected with uh, the Islamic teachings, definitely you are not required to do so. Okay? And it's very important, actually, in dealing with people, you know, those of you who are non-Muslims, you are living amongst Muslims, you will find these variations. You know, a Pakistani might deal with you in one way, Egyptian deals with you in another way, Saudi deals with you in another way, Sudanese deals with you in another way. You wonder, well, what is the way? Is one of these ways Islam or all of them Islam? Well, you know, what you can do is to seek to understand the basis of it. The one which, which agrees with the Qur'an and the Sunnah, that is Islam. The ones which go against is against Islam. And the ones which don't go against or don't agree with, you know, they're just in between, neutral, then you can take them or leave them. And they're quite okay. No problem. Okay? Any other questions uh, from our uh, <coughs> non-Muslim brothers who are here? Thank you, brothers, and uh, we should be wrapping up, uh, wrapping up right now. Uh, feel free, actually, help yourself. There is a refreshment in here, and I think actually until we reach prayer time, if someone has his own uh, sort of a personal question or something like that to Akhablal, I think he's, he's very much welcome. Okay, uh, actually, just before you close, there's one question which is asked here. You know, is Islam democratic, or does it accept democracy? You know, or not? Uh, this is a point which uh, I think it's, it's good to understand uh, that Islam in fact does not accept democra democracy as it is understood you know, coming out of uh, Greece and understood in the West today because what the democracy says is that whatever the majority of the people agree on becomes law, becomes correct and whatever they disagree on becomes incorrect so values can change you know, what was right today can become wrong tomorrow. Whereas Islam recognizes certain things as being right for all time. Because the basis of Islam is revelation from God. Things which are right have been defined. Things which are, are wrong are, have been defined. And these things are unchangeable. So there, there is no way that the masses of the people can come together and decide, well, no, we're no longer going to accept this as being right, or we're no longer going to consider this thing to be wrong. No way. So to that degree, there is no democracy that what the role of the people may have in any different uh, place or time is 
an ability to come together on a consultative basis, they call the shura, you know, where representatives of the people will make suggestions as to the application of the law, not in, as to the rightness or wrongness of the law. You see, the law, when the law is being applied, it may be applied in a gradual fashion, or it may be applied, it may have certain implications, it may be applied in one way or another way. This, the people may express, you know, that much of democracy comes out here in what is suited to their time and their place. But the rightness or wrongness of the law can never be changed. And the duty of government is only to oversee the application of the law for the people. And this is why, for example, you will find that uh, the issue of alcohol, for example, the prohibition of alcohol in a Muslim country, say for example here, it is something which is accepted by the masses of the people. So, the law that alcohol is prohibited is something followed by the masses of the people. It's not to say there aren't people producing it. Sure, some of them may have Muslim names too. I'm not denying all this, you know. There are some. Because no matter what laws you set up, there will always be those who will try to break it. Okay? Now, but in general, the society as a whole has accepted that alcohol is prohibited. So the law of prohibition of alcohol functions in this society without any problems. Whereas in America, for example, there was a period of time when the leaders of the country, you know, in looking at the problems which existed produced by alcohol, decided to ban alcohol. This period was called a period of prohibition. Alcohol was prohibited in America. But because the masses of the people did not accept this law, they looked at it as something introduced by certain people in powerful positions for their own personal interests, they rejected it and, you know, uh, they produced on their own and, you know, a, a booming business in what they call moonshine, you know, illegal alcohol developed and eventually the, the, the impetus or the, the, the society as a whole forced those laws to be repealed. In spite of the fact that we see all the harm which comes from alcohol, how many millions of people, you know, die, have died over the years from alcohol-related diseases, accidents, etc., etc., yet it cannot be banned there because of the fact that democracy, the choice of the people, is the determining factor between what is right and wrong. So homosexuality, for example, which is clearly condemned in the Bible, penalty of death in the Bible, which was accepted at one time now it's a crime for you to uh, accuse somebody of, you know, or uh, being a homosexual or deny him a job because they're homosexual. Now the homosexuals have right to defend themselves. They have their own churches, they have their own representatives, you know, and they're, you know, clamoring more and more for their rights because it's a democracy. So what was wrong so many years ago, according to Revelation, because Revelation now religion has been separated from the state becomes right today. Thank you.